We're returning to the second of the four categories of right effort, and that is removal. And there are numbers of ways of removing unwholesome mental states which have arisen. This list of five is particularly good. It's a very important sutta. You should get a hold of it when you get back home and read it over. Have it tattooed on the back of your hand in brief form. We talked yesterday about two of them. The first one was simply substitution, so replacing unwholesome mental states with their opposite or any other wholesome mental state. The simile for this is as a carpenter has assembled a chair in a crude formation, they do it with pegs at the time, wooden pegs. And then when they're when it's all finished and ready, they do the final finished pegs by tapping in that finished peg which pushes out the older peg. So you're literally tapping in something into your mental system, your emotional system, and that excludes what is there. So there's part of the theory. The Buddhist theory is that you can't do two things at the same time. That an unwholesome and a wholesome emotional condition can't simultaneously exist. There's some misunderstandings about that, especially in modern times. People talk about being sort of objective about their anger or objective about their greed or something like that. Actually, you have a notion that you can be both outside of it and have it at the same time, but from a Buddhist point of view, you can't do that. You either have it or you don't. You might have some capacity to observe that you have it, but you're still in it. So this means that they are mutually exclusive. A wholesome state mutually eliminates unwholesome state. So that's good to think about. It's empowering to be confident of that as well. You know exactly when, you're, when you have a negative condition that... You can actually just put in a different cartridge and the other one is going to fall out the other side. So that's good to know and be very clear about. The second one is concern for the opinion of the wise. It's very very important to have somebody that you admire, that you revere. And that's the idea of the Buddha is saying, it's a blessing to have someone that you have respect for. And then you can use that. The blessing is that you can use that for your own benefit. You, you bring that into your mind and you think, what would that wise person think of what I'm doing now, what would be the opinion about that? And you will get the answer. 
what you're doing is very unskillful and you should change that. It's not worthy of the wise. Now, there's another word in Pali. This, what I'm talking about here, is called hiri otapa, and roughly translated as fear and shame, but I prefer to just drop those because they're just so contaminated. The words fear and shame are contaminated. So we need new explanations. So that I prefer that you have an appreciation of beauty is fear, that you fear to lose your beauty. And shame is actually high regard for the opinion of the wise. You have people, humans, that you esteem and have high regard for their skill. And this makes more sense of this. What would be a shame to throw away your beauty for ugliness. And that is what we're, we're afraid to do that. So the simile there is that the person looks in the mirror and they've got something, a very great flaw on their face or a dead, a dead snake hanging around their neck, etc. Some sort of pretty outlandish defect and you immediately don't want that there. You're concerned about that. It's, it's obviously not something to be tolerated. So that idea is an appreciation, a strong appreciation of beauty in yourself, perhaps a hard-won beauty, or beauty that you're aspiring to or holding on to, maintaining, and then beauty in another. And this is very close to this idea of the Kalyanamitta. Kalyanamitta is a beautiful friend. Mitta means friend, Kalyana means beautiful. And the Buddha, for instance, is, is a Kalyanamitta. And Ananda, his attendant, once talked about this. The Buddha said it's very, very important to have a Kalyanamitta, a spiritual friend. And spiritual doesn't do it justice, but it's a beautiful friend, and it's not somebody who happens to be handsome or beautiful. It's They have the beautiful spiritual qualities, and that's their beauty. They could be shriveled old people with funny ears, but they're very beautiful because of the beautiful quality. So Ajahn Chah was not particularly handsome in later life, but he was very beautiful. <laughs> and so you can see this beautiful friend has regard for you and you have regard for their opinion and so we're really in the realm of beauty and then how is it that so that there's this famous dialogue with Ananda he says to the Buddha I think that having a Kalyana Mitta a beautiful spiritual friend is half of the path and then the Buddha replies somewhat enigmatically that no Ananda no a beautiful friend is the whole of the path and the Buddha is always doing this he's always giving you wait a sec I thought you said no one else can do it for you you have to walk the path yourself and now you're telling me that a the spiritual friend is 100% of the path well how does that work 
Usually the story, if people are repeating it, that it ends there, you know, it says, but the Buddha does go on to explain it. That what happens is that you begin to embody the same spiritual qualities that the spiritual friend has. You internalize these qualities. And so they become yours. So it's actually the Kalyanamitta are just, it's not a person outside of you. It is just these beautiful qualities which arise eventually within you. And that's how this process works. But if you don't have an idea and an admiration for these beautiful qualities, they can't rise within you. And so this is the this is what Hiri Otapa really means is the emulation and practice. And it's the same in all of the arts as well. You if you want to be a good musician, you listen to good musicians and you your teacher it's not your teacher that you're interested in. It's the sense of the music. So if you can manage to get this, then the sense of the music arises in you. And now you are participating in the music. The music is something else. The Greeks were very good at this. They, they have names for, for these qualities. that They're usually represented as gods. Dionysius and etc. The... They are personalizations or deifications of qualities that are found in people. And they, they imagine it as a guy with a name, you know, so, or a woman, a goddess with a name, and that is the goddess of such and such, the goddess of love, whatever. But there's no such thing embodied. It's embodied, it arises within individuals. So these are skills, uh, and skill is beautiful. These are qualities of virtue and attitudes of mind, loving-kindness, generosity, lucidity, clarity, curiosity, patience. All of these things are beautiful qualities which you may come across a friend that has them, and then you pick them up, and then you have them. And they're all kind of disembodied qualities. Remember the Buddha, somebody coming to look at the Buddha, to see the Buddha. And, he, and the Buddha says, what, what are you here for? He says, I just wanted to see you. And he says again, enigmatically, it's always good. Makes you try to understand the story. He says, you can't see the Buddha. You can't see the Buddha after death. You can't even see him while he's alive. And the man standing in front of him cannot see the Buddha. But if you see Dhamma, then you will see the Buddha. And if you see the Buddha, you will just see Dhamma. When you actually see the Buddha, you just see Dhamma. And when you see Dhamma, then that's all that the Buddha is, is Dhamma. Disembodied qualities, which you can actually see, which might be useful to you. So this is what is meant by the second technique for removing these unwholesome emotional structures is a deep appreciation of, of the heroes, really, that you have, ideal heroes. 
There can be all kinds of people manifesting this bravery and courage and generosity and all kinds of beautiful things that impress you and that make you want to live up to it and not be not be diminished from that. The next removal structure is simply distraction. You know, whatever the object is that is either causing you aversion or desire, one averts one's gaze from it. But that could be, you might not be actually looking at this thing with your eyes. It's in your head. It's an old argument that you had. It's an old idea you had that you saw in a picture of a red Corvette or something like this. Uh, etc. So you, you, you have this, so one way is to avert your gaze from that, to change, just to distract yourself. There's a kind of an interesting story in the, I think it's in the Visuddhimagga about monks using this technique. So monks have, at the time of the Buddha and still to this day, they have a little shoulder bag called the, in the at least in the Thai, a yam. <laughs> and that has got most of your minimal kind of gear in it, your toothbrush and your glasses and your maybe your razor and a bunch of things. It's like a purse, you know, basically a man purse, a monk purse. It is your monk's monk purse, yeah. So whatever things you have are in that bag. And so the monk is drifting in his mind. Perhaps he's just newly ordained and he suddenly recalls with great vividness his girlfriend. <laughs> and then he thinks, I don't know, I, yeah, starts remembering. So, uh, catches himself. So they advise the monk then to, he takes his shoulder bag and he takes all of the contents out of the shoulder bag and he tidies everything up, cleans it all up, and then turns the bag inside out, gets everything out of there nice and tidy and neat, and then puts everything back in, and that... That interruption is enough to cease with the little story about his ex-girlfriend, you know. He's back, he's back. So this is a very useful realization that you can, you should have some stuff up your sleeve, not stuff, but, (laughs) and not up your sleeve, but you know what I mean. You should have some strategies, some tactics for distracting yourself Sometimes it only takes, uh, if you can hold out for about a minute or two, then the strength of the impulse to go into the anger, go into the, to go into the desire to get swept away in agitation or to go into a state of heaviness and sloth, you know. Sometimes you're just kind of dull and everything and you think, ah, I should just lie down to hell with it all. And, and if you can just... Cut that off for two minutes, it passes. And then you don't need the nap after all. It turns out you don't need to lie down. It was just kind of a, I give up. <laughs> so distraction, averting the gaze. And you should have a few tactics ready for such purposes. They can be very handy. And it's very good for cleaning up your man purse as well. <laughs> 
keeps it regularly tidied up. By the way, so if, a, if the monk's yam is a mess, then you know he doesn't need distractions. So he may be very pure and therefore his yam is a mess. <laughs> but if his yam is extremely orderly, then he may be using that technique on a regular basis. <laughs> That technique is actually used a lot in reverse by people, isn't it? When you're supposed to get your essay done, that's the time when you decide to bake an apple pie. <laughs> that's the time when you decide you're procrastinating. You're supposed to be doing something, a duty, a wholesome duty, and you reverse the thing and distract yourself with some unwholesome or interruptive kind of process instead of actually getting what you're supposed to be doing done. So it's very interesting how we know about this distraction technique. And we just use it in reverse to actually keep us on track. The fourth method is it's a little vague. That actually, the Buddha does not give you the details of this, but he leaves you with this very interesting idea. Now, how did we get to the fourth technique? Are they all random, or are they supposed to be used in order? Actually, they're supposed to be used in order. It means that the first three have failed. That the unwholesome is quite strong and we have not succeeded in replacing it with the wholesome. We have not succeeded in remembering our beauty and being mm, impressed by the opinion of the wise and then our distraction technique has not managed to get us out of the unwholesome. Now we're going to go to the fourth option and the fourth option is just described by the Buddha as a man is running and he thinks, why am I running? Why don't I walk? And so he walks. Then he thinks, why am I walking? Why don't I sit down? And so he sits down. Why am I sitting down? Why don't I lie down? So he lies down. So he's a beautiful little cartoon. <laughs> you can just see the man running, walking, sitting, and lying down. And so what does this mean? This means that sometimes the energies of the hindrances, the psychic power of these self-harassments, these unwise emotions, are powerful, and they simply can't be stopped on a dime. And so you still have an option. You can bring it down one stage, you know. And then you might have a chance to bring it down to the next level, to the next level, to the next level. You know, it used to be the old, um, Lord knows where this started, but when you're angry, count to ten before you say anything. Beautiful. If very angry, a hundred. <laughs> so this is the structure of, at least we could deflate it somewhat. If we can reduce the energy 
we might have a chance at the next stage to bring it to a halt. But if not, then we go down. So there's a lot of possible... You can fill in the blanks there. One thing is to change your location. So in fact, to go for a walk. Maybe while you're sitting there, it's just too much. But to change the location of your body. Now, this particularly happens with agitation and sloth. So the Buddha recommends this very highly. With lack of energy to change postures. The first one he talks about actually is when you're sitting and you're declining into drowsiness and heaviness. He says you should pull your earlobes, magical, mystical, something or other, pull your, pinch your earlobes, and somehow that will kind of waken you a little bit. That must have been an old trick in India at the time. And then if not, then you can visualize light. If there's not light there, you can visualize it. You can try to conjure up light. But you can also just open your eyes and try to get some light in it. If that doesn't work, then you should stand up and maybe go and splash your face with water. And then you can do some walking, walking back and forth, meditation. And the Buddha says, if all of that does not work, then you should go and sleep. (laughs) You're obviously really tired. (laughs) So if it's just shrugging off a kind of a sloth and heaviness, those are methods for that. So that could be part of the staging of this bringing energy back in. You might use the technique also of reflection on death. So death is a sense of urgency, and it energizes you. You say, well, how much time have I got left anyway? If we really think about that, it kind of brings you back to life. makes you appreciate your possibilities. This can alleviate that lack of energy. There are different tricks that would apply to each of the hindrances as well. Bringing anger down, you know, you can... You can reflect on how the anger, bringing it down, you can start reflecting on how do you feel? How does it really actually feel in your body? And you'll notice very clearly that it's unpleasant. It's like an illness. The Buddha always compares the feeling of anger to an illness. And, of course, when you get over anger, you get the same effect as getting over an illness you get is like getting over the flu. It feels really good not to have the flu or to get over a cold or any illness. It just feels so good to get over it. And the same thing is when you get over anger, it's just such a rejoicing thing. If you have a little squabble with a friend, you know, and then you're kind of miffed for two hours and everything or a day or two days or something. And then uh, you know, you'd start talking and you think, what the hell were we thinking? You know, I mean, what was this all about? Anyway, you give each other a hug and, you know, it's all over. You feel, you feel this incredible sort of how much better it feels, how good it is to be over that anger. So these are means of bringing this, whatever the hindrances, down in stages If we can't do it immediately, we can try to do it in stages and then 
eventually get there. Changing posture. Another method is to listen to the voice of another. So sometimes the voice of another can pull you out of something you can't get out of yourself. So that is the same as on our logging road here in the winter. Although you have your four-wheel drive, sometimes you just can't get out of the snowbank yourself. So you have to call Joe and the tractor. (laughs) So the voice of another or the cable of another can sometimes pull you out of some situation you can't get out of yourself. I highly recommend Ajahn Sona's YouTube channel (laughs) or podcasts such as this. You probably are listening to this now, ladies and gentlemen. This is going on live, but this is sometime in the future. You will be listening to these words and seeing if this can help you wind it down at least, whatever you're your whatever you're stuck in if it can bring it down one step one level and then after you finish with the dhamma talk well there might be at least you're walking now and then perhaps later you will be sitting and perhaps finally you'll be lying down and that lying down is that you're finished with the unwholesome state you're over it The last of these, and it's quite startling for many Buddhists to come across this, but the Buddha recommends, he says, as a strong man holds down a weaker man, one clenches one's teeth, puts the tongue to the roof of the mouth, and suppresses with all her might, crushes this anger, this greed, this agitation. This this is your last resort. It's not the one you start with it's your last resort but don't let this thing run away with you don't act on it don't speak on it don't go with it and it's showing you that this is just not going to run your inner life and that you can use sheer willpower as well The other ones are more skillful and preferable, but this is the last resort, and you just can't fly off the handle. This seems to plainly contradict the idea that what one is doing in meditation is simply observing the rise and passing away of things. But no, there's some very dramatic instructions by the Buddha to really wrestle these things down if you have to. This is not watching anything rise and pass away. Now, notice that a lot of these techniques are not totally unknown, especially to special ed teachers. (laughs) Now, in my day at school, they started with the last one. They started with that. Actually, they didn't even start by wrestling you down. They just smacked you across the back of the head. They didn't try to distract you or appeal to your sense of beauty or try to distract you with something. They just threw a piece of chalk across the room, (laughs) told you to shut up. And that's quite often bad parenting as well. Parents who don't have skills start with the most dramatic kind of 
a gratuitous violence because they don't know what, what to do. But So the skillful teacher, the skillful special ed teacher, the skillful parent will actually have that same kind of structure of techniques because the child is, unless they're very exceptional, they are going to manifest the hindrances. They are going to have these things. And it's going to, if you don't teach them how to manage that, then it's going to be to their detriment. But you're going to start, if the child is angry, then you're going to try to swing that into perhaps the opposite, loving kindness. Well, let's go visit grandma. You know how you love to visit grandma. And then the mood changes. You know, they had a quarrel with their little neighbor or whatever. And we're, let's go over see grandma. So then there's this mood change, a substitute, a positive thing. And then later on, perhaps, then they, they get over it because they like to play with the kid next door. And then they finally, the little quarrel doesn't last. And then they're back playing with it. And they, they, they discover also how good it feels to get over a, a grudge and a, and a problem. But anyway, all the way down the line, and in the case of schools these days, they don't, at least I don't, I'm not sure how it is the U.S., but somewhere around when I was about 15 or 16, they stopped the corporal punishment, the freedom of the teachers to smack you, hit you with things, or take you to the principal's office who would strap you and do this to you and that to you. Somehow they decided after 15 years of this that it was probably not the best thing. Let's quit that. (laughs) I managed to get all the way through school before they decided not to do that anymore. It's a bit like capital punishment. I think about the same time, almost the same year as they abolished capital punishment in Canada. By the way, if you're American, you might not realize we haven't executed anybody since the early 60s. (laughs) they decided not to beat up kids and not to kill people uh, in prison. So, but there is this option if you're a special ed teacher that a kid is absolutely out of control and has not responded to any of the systematically skillful techniques that they're taught to keep these kids that have behavioral difficulties out of, under some control. The last one is you've got to actually physically wrestle them down. You can't let them throw a chair through the window or hit the kid beside them with, a, with something, you know. It has to, it will be physical, but you, you will be told, you know, that this, you're not to be angry, but you are to use your superior strength to hold this kid down because the, all the other techniques didn't work. Why are you doing this? Because... You simply can't allow this to go out of the boundaries of this. So this is the same interior structure as good parenting. You're parenting yourself, actually. You get a chance to do it all over again, the right way. If you thought your parents weren't skillful, you get a chance to do it now for yourself. You get to be your own parent. You get to be your own mother, your own father. And raise yourself again. And skillfully, hopefully, this time. 
And also you can apply this to others as well. I mean, you're going to transmit these. If these techniques work for you, you also have something in the bag because you'll see all kinds of unskillful behavior. People don't know these things. And you will have, if the opportunity in life comes up once in a while, you might be able to share some of these strategies, techniques. So I got taught this one time in a retreat, or this is what the Buddha says, or this works for me. You can try this, and you know, there's a kind of a series of skillful means of dealing with these kind of negative emotions. Very good. So we have come to basically explored at least the first two of right effort, the negative stuff, prevention and removal. And in the future talks, I will be talking about the positive side of this, how to bring into existence and how to maintain, deepen and cultivate the beautiful, the wholesome mental states, wholesome emotional states. I'll leave that tonight.